It's Palm Sunday, 1938, a week before Easter. In New Haven, Connecticut, in early April, the trees were still bare. Spring was coming slowly. But Armageddon, according to Newton Cantwell, was coming fast. Cantwell and his two sons, Jesse and Russell, were ringing doorbells across the small city. When a resident answered, they would explain how they were Jehovah's Witnesses, that they believed the end of days was near, and then they would say, could I play you a record about my faith? They'd pull out a portable phonograph, wind it up, and put on a recording of Judge Rutherford, the leader of Jehovah's Witnesses. It is often said that religion is a snare and a racket, and why? Religion had its origin with Satan, who implored religion to reproach Jehovah the Almighty God. If the person was interested, Cantwell and his sons would ask for a donation, and then they'd reach into their bags for books and pamphlets. But not too many people were interested that day. The Cantwells were walking down Cassius Street in New Haven, a street one block long by the train tracks, where almost all the residents were Catholic. They weren't having much luck at the homes, so one of the sons, Jesse Cantwell, stopped two men on the sidewalk and asked them if he could play a record. They said sure, and Jesse held out the phonograph, wound it up, and put on a recording called Enemies. Many of the nations of the earth call themselves Christian nations because within the borders thereof, There are many who claim to be servants of God. Such persons, and particularly the leaders in the religious organizations, have some knowledge of God because they have the Bible and can claim to believe it and claim to teach it. But God classes them as wicked because they are lawless. It was another lecture by Judge Rutherford, but this time about how the Roman Catholic Church was evil. The two men on the sidewalk, who were Catholic, threatened to hit Jesse Cantwell for playing it. He stopped the record immediately and walked away. But then the cops still showed up and arrested him, his brother, and his father for soliciting money without a license and for a breach of the peace. Their case landed at the Supreme Court, and the justices had to decide whether the First Amendment protected their right to proselytize like that. Today, it might seem obvious that the court would rule in their favor. But back then, it definitely wasn't. The right to free speech and free exercise of religion used to be weak. It was their case and a slew of other cases then brought by Jehovah's Witnesses that would completely transform First Amendment rights in America. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is Constitutional. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty. To ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. The blessings of liberty are twin. They're at once the ability to withhold your private life from the public sphere— This is something we talked about in our previous episode on privacy. And on the flip side, the ability to express your private life in the public sphere. This is what's captured and protected by the First Amendment. The First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, 
or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Many people today would say these words of the First Amendment sit at the very heart of the American experiment. They represent freedom of individual belief and expression, freedom from conformity. But actually, the First Amendment has not always been central to American identity or to constitutional law. So why has it come to occupy the almost sacred place it does today? Well, it turns out that's largely because of an incredible series of cases involving Jehovah's Witnesses that flooded the Supreme Court during World War II. Jehovah's Witnesses, who are also known as Bible students or members of the Watchtower Society, were, and still are, a very small religious group in America. There were only about 40,000 of them in the 1930s and the 1940s. They believed that the second coming of Jesus is just around the corner. They also believe that Jehovah, God, is the only one who should be exalted, so not the false power of organized religions or the false power of secular governments. They were a pretty extreme, unpopular, persecuted minority group. But between 1938 and 1946, this group argued 23 cases for their rights before the Supreme Court. Their relentless litigation forced the court to define and ultimately to strengthen the role of the First Amendment in the United States. This ushered in a new era of personal liberty protections for all Americans. Jehovah's Witnesses actually are more famous today among constitutional lawyers and scholars than in the broader society, because those people who study constitutional change think of the Witnesses as true heroes having brought into existence a new constitutional world. This is Sarah Baringer-Gordon, or Sally Gordon. She's a professor of constitutional law and history at the University of Pennsylvania's Law School, and she's an expert on religious liberty. And here's Julie Silverbrook, executive director of the Constitutional Sources Project. This idea that the First Amendment is so core to who we are comes out of the language of these opinions. I mean, I go and talk to people about the Constitution all over the country, and they all say, well, the First Amendment is the crown jewel of the Bill of Rights. I mean, it's first for a reason. I don't mean to burst their bubble, but it was actually third when the Bill of Rights was originally proposed. So it wasn't first for a specific reason, but it has become first in the hearts and minds, I think, of most Americans is that free speech, religious liberty, freedom of the press, the right to assemble. These are all core parts of what it means to be an American. And having those things protected robustly is what it means to be in America. And so all of that, that modern understanding, is coming out of the case law from this period. Here's what happened. Fast forward about 150 years from the Constitutional Convention and drive just 90 miles northwest from Philadelphia's Independence Hall, you're now in the town of Minersville, Pennsylvania in the year 1935. It was a coal mining town hit hard by the Great Depression. One of the few men who lived there but didn't work in the mines or wasn't laid off by the mines was Walter Gobitis. His parents were Lithuanian immigrants and he was described as a cheery man, fairly short, with a boyish face. He ran a small shop on Sunbury Street called The Economy Grocery, and he had six children. The oldest were Lillian, 12, and William, 10. They were all Jehovah's Witnesses. Around this time, Franklin Roosevelt had recently become president, and he was expanding the U.S. government's powers in an effort to lift the nation out of the Depression. Across the Atlantic, the government of Nazi Germany was gaining strength, and it had started persecuting religious minorities, including Jehovah's Witnesses. Back in the small, coal-covered town of Minersville, Walter Gobitis and his family listened regularly in the evenings to lectures and radio programs by Jehovah's Witness leader, Judge Rutherford. 
the Jehovah's Witness teachings underscored time and again that God was the only true authority. They argued that every level of government did not deserve any allegiance from the witnesses. So one of the things that Rutherford did in one of his weekly radio shows was tell his followers not to heil Hitler or anyone else in 1935. And a father and son in Lynn, Massachusetts, took this to mean that they should not salute the flag. This was based in their sense of the second commandment not to worship graven images. This was an idol, the flag, to them. The salute was the equivalent of worshiping a false god. The Gobaitis family heard about this boy in Massachusetts, and they heard Rutherford praising the courage of witnesses like him who demonstrated their faith. And so Lillian and William talked with their parents about whether they should take a similar stand. Both children struggled with the decision, as they recalled in their memoirs later. They both really liked school, and they didn't want to be outcasts. But both of them felt, in the end, that they needed to resist. One day, William came home from school. He was in fifth grade at the time. And he told his family that he had, just that morning, refused to salute the flag. He said, the teacher tried to put up my arm, but I held onto my pocket. This is a clip from Lillian describing the event years later, in 2010. After Lillian heard that her brother had stopped saluting the flag in school, she got up the courage to do the very same thing the next day. She was in seventh grade. And I thought, oh my goodness, I have to take my own stand. I'd been kind of a chick, chicken before that. And so the next day I went to the teacher and said, Miss Schofstall, and I explained what I was going to do and why. For two weeks, the children were mocked and picked on by other students. They had stones thrown at them. They were so angry at me. And when I came to school, they said, here comes Jehovah. And the pebbles were flying. <laughs> but I didn't care. They continued going to school. And over that whole time, they continued not to say the Pledge of Allegiance or raise their right arm in salute. And it, it's interesting because... It was really not until the early 1890s that you saw flag salute rituals become more formalized. And some of that had to do with marking the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus discovering the Americas. And then following the Spanish-American War and World War I, this idea of wanting to encourage patriotism and also concern about others, so people coming from outside the American tradition, um, you know, folks who are, who are socialists and communists, and seeing the flag salute as a way of um, encouraging cohesion away from these sort of others that were coming in. This is also a time of mass immigration from other countries. So that's part of why we start to see the flag salutes become a more formalized process. The Gobitis children weren't violating an official law or even an official school policy. But it was something that had become a ritual, and two weeks after Lillian and William stopped participating in it, the news got around to the superintendent, and he had the two young children expelled. The Gobitis family took the Minersville School District to the lower court, they argued that their children had a right to stay in school even if they didn't salute the flag, given their religious beliefs. As William put it in a letter that he wrote to the school, I love my country and I love God more. A few years later, in 1938, the Gobitis children won their case. But the school district appealed the decision, and so the case went to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Again, the children won. So finally, the Minersville School District brought the suit all the way to the Supreme Court in 1940. And when that happened, Judge Rutherford himself stepped in. God. Religion was first organized with Nimrod as leader, and he was the one whom the people were taught to worship. 
Now, if you want an image in your head of Judge Rutherford, just picture a pretty severe-looking man with a comb-over and with these dark, thick eyebrows that are always arched, so it always looks like he's mad at you. Religion leads men to destruction. One of the things that Rutherford brought to the leadership of the witnesses was first a dedication to law. He wanted the witnesses to use litigation, to use the tools of a satanic government against itself. So Rutherford stood before the long bench of nine Supreme Court justices in Washington, D.C. on April 25th, 1940, and he delivered a fiery oral argument on behalf of young Lillian and William Gobitis. His defense rested on their right to free speech and free exercise of religion under the First Amendment to the Constitution. But let's back up a moment. Why hadn't there been a ton of influential First Amendment cases already? The Supreme Court hears less than 12 First Amendment cases in the period between 1791, when the Bill of Rights is ratified, and 1889. And a big piece of that is because at the time, the Supreme Court and and actually really the country didn't view the Bill of Rights as applicable to the states. For about the first hundred years of the nation's history, Congress couldn't make any federal laws that silenced citizens' rights to freedom of speech or freedom of religion. But states could basically make whatever laws they wanted. And that meant that the Supreme Court didn't have much occasion to hear First Amendment cases. That slowly started to change after we got the 14th Amendment in the late 1800s. That amendment had a clause in it that finally said state laws, in addition to federal laws, can't abridge the rights of U.S. citizens. So from then on, the Supreme Court could start hearing cases about whether state laws violated an individual's rights, like the right to free speech. And then there's this process that lawyers and historians call selective incorporation, which is the Supreme Court is sort of selectively applying the Bill of Rights to the states. It takes a while for this to happen, though. It's not until a case in 1925 called Gitlow versus New York that the Supreme Court finally gets around to evaluating the First Amendment within the context of state law. But in that case, the court actually ended up ruling in favor of New York anyway. So really, it takes until 1940 before the Supreme Court decides a landmark case declaring that Not only does the First Amendment apply on the state level, but the state in question had in fact violated an individual's right to the free exercise of religion. And this brings us back to Jehovah's Witnesses. Because 1940 was when the Supreme Court heard the Gobitis children's case. It was also when the Supreme Court heard another Jehovah's Witness case. Cantwell versus Connecticut. That was the case from the very beginning of this episode, the one where Newton Cantwell and his two sons, Jesse and Russell, were arrested in New Haven for playing religious records in public and proselytizing about their faith. Their case went to the Supreme Court only a few weeks before the flag-saluting case involving little Lillian and William Gobitis. The two Jehovah's Witness cases happened back-to-back. The Cantwell case was argued by Hayden Covington. Covington was the new general counsel for the Watchtower Society. He was a Jehovah's Witness himself, and like Rutherford, he was definitely a firebrand. He had grown up on a farm in East Texas and had made a name for himself arguing witness cases at the local level. But now, the Cantwell's First Amendment case was the first time he argued before the Supreme Court. I would have loved to hear that lawyer Hayden Covington, because apparently he talked like a machine gun, you know, and he just jumped up and down and lectured the court on looking daggers at Justice Murphy, who was Catholic. It just must have been incredible. 
when he confronted the Supreme Court, both Judge Rutherford and Hayden Covington used to talk down to the justices. <laughs> they would say things like, you know, you don't understand. We're trying to educate you in the truth, which is God's law. And nothing you say can be held any higher than God's law. So they really were deeply, deeply confrontational. They also had support from a number of religious liberals across the country and within the ACLU, so that the ACLU gave legal sophistication, if I could put it that way, to some of the more raw arguments made by the witnesses themselves, including Rutherford and Covington. So the Supreme Court heard Covington's oral argument in the Cantwell proselytizing case in March of 1940. Then in April, it heard oral argument from Judge Rutherford in the Gobitis school children case. It then released its decision for the Cantwell case in May, and it released its decision for the Gobitis children's case in June. One, two, three, four. The Cantwell decision came out first, and Covington did it. He won the first major First Amendment victory at the Supreme Court for Jehovah's Witnesses. And this opinion was widely heralded, actually, by religious liberals. It was thought that this would be a protection for religious diversity, even though the Jehovah's Witnesses themselves were not religiously tolerant. So it was a question of tolerating the intolerant and was quite a leap for the constitutional law of religion. Next up, the Gobitis decision. There were several reasons to think that this case might well be decided in favor of the schoolchildren. One was that the schoolchildren were pretty appealing plaintiffs. They were cute, you know, and they were not dangerous. Plus, the Gobitis children had won each of their cases up until the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court had just handed this big First Amendment victory to their fellow Jehovah's Witnesses. So it's June 3rd, 1940. The family is back in Minersville. And the court announces, wait, what? The Gobitis family was stunned. Jehovah's Witnesses were stunned. Court watchers were stunned. The Supreme Court justices decided to rule eight to one against the schoolchildren. In a blow to the First Amendment, they said that compelling these children to say the Pledge of Allegiance and salute the flag was constitutional. So it's all the more interesting, actually, to me that the person who writes the decision in Gobitis is Felix Frankfurter, who immigrates to the United States from Austria. And at the time he's writing this opinion, the Nazis have annexed Austria. And so, you know, this is really in World War II. And instead of seeing maybe these flag salutes as similar to saluting the Nazis, he's instead very whipped up about patriotism, about really seeing the United States as a critical player in stopping the spread of Nazism and fascism globally, and that really impacts his decisions. The majority decision written by Felix Frankfurter was really aimed at both assimilating children. He argued strongly that Lillian and William were not well served by their parents, that the public schools was the best place to breed good citizens, right, to bring them up so that they would participate in the life of the country. And the pledge was the best way to secure that kind of citizenship because it unified everyone around the symbol of the flag. And the court says that the state's interest, and I'm going to quote a little bit from the opinion, says that the state's interest in national cohesion was inferior to none in the hierarchy of legal values, and that national unity was the basis of national security. So for them, national cohesion and patriotism, the balance is in favor of that over First Amendment right of religious conscience. The only justice who dissents, the only one who thinks that First Amendment rights should take precedence here, is Justice Harlan Fisk Stone. 
He wrote that, quote, It does more than suppress freedom of speech and more than prohibit the free exercise of religion. He says, For by this law, the state seeks to coerce these children to express a sentiment which, as they interpret it, they do not entertain and which violates their deepest religious convictions. And he ends his dissent with the thought that the Constitution expresses more than the conviction of the people that democratic processes must be preserved at all costs. It is also an expression of faith and a command that freedom of mind and spirit must be preserved. And I have to say, Frankfurter was very surprised that there was a dissent. Stone only released it very late in the process of putting the opinion together. And Stone read aloud his dissent in open court, which was unusual. Clearly, Stone was worried about what would happen after this opinion was handed down. And for good reason. As soon as the court announced its decision to rule against the Gabaitis children, it was as if the court had actually endorsed the snuffing out of religious freedom. A wave of persecution fell over Jehovah's Witnesses across the country. Lillian Gabaitis recalled it vividly decades and decades later. By then, she was an old woman with bright white curls. One, one night, we, my father got a telephone threat. It was really his business associate. And he said, Wally, if you don't call a Philadelphia Inquirer and tell them you will now salute, there will be a mob coming to trash your store, and we don't know what will happen to you and your children. This was open season on Jehovah's Witnesses. In the months following the flag salute decision, churches around Minersville led boycotts of Walter Gobitis's grocery store. William was beaten, Lillian was taunted and ostracized. But that was hardly the worst of it. The ACLU reported that more than a thousand Jehovah's Witnesses had been violently attacked across the country in more than 200 separate incidents. Witnesses were beat up. One man was castrated. Their offices were subject to arson and burglary. I mean, it really was terrible what happened to the witnesses in reaction to this opinion because it made them look like a danger to the country. And everyone was so worried about what was going on in Europe and what it would mean for the United States. They both wanted to stay out of the war and they were very afraid of what was happening. And they were deeply concerned that they would not be prepared for war if they were, if their country was divided in the ways that witnesses wanted to divide it. The violence continued. In Pennsylvania, witnesses were attacked with axes. In Wyoming, they were actually tarred and feathered. In Maine, their building was burned. In West Virginia, they were forced by police to drink oil. The ACLU in 1941 published that, quote, nothing parallel to this extensive mob violence has taken place in the United States since the days of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. And this is where you start to see elite opinion really change because the idea that we would be physically harming people as a result of this opinion was really jarring, especially for the legal academy and for the press. And so the legal academy starts to become very critical of Frankfurter's opinion in Gobitis, and the press starts to do the same thing. And while we can't know for certain, it certainly looks like that pressure is helping some of the justices who were in the majority in Gobitis start to rethink the wisdom of that decision. Meanwhile, in spite of this persecution, or rather because of this persecution, Jehovah's Witnesses bring more cases to the Supreme Court about their First Amendment rights. 
leaders of the witnesses were deeply interested in keeping the legal system actively engaged with them. This was another form of witness to hurl themselves against the state by getting arrested in the first place, by resisting prosecution, refusing to pay fines, appealing as high as they could go. These were things that were viewed as heroic by the witnesses. They witnessed to their faith by doing them. Hayden Covington became the main lawyer on many of these cases before the Supreme Court. Cases that weren't just about religion or free speech, but also about other aspects of the First Amendment that affected Jehovah's Witnesses, like freedom of assembly, freedom of the press. In 1942, Covington argued and lost two influential cases, Chaplinsky v. New Hampshire and Jones v. Opelika. In the Chaplinsky case, a Jehovah's Witness was arrested for things he said to a policeman. He's selling books out in public, and a police officer stops him, and he calls the police officer a goddamn racketeer. And the court comes up with this doctrine called the the fighting words doctrine. So, you know, if you say something that is immediately designed to cause someone to come to fisticuffs, that that would be an unprotected area of speech. And that's significant because in this period, what the court is doing is it is establishing the parameters of what speech is protected and what speech isn't protected. And so even though Jehovah's Witnesses lost this case, they did succeed in forcing the court to continue thinking about these questions. A lot of us have the Jehovah's Witnesses to thank for how robust and also how clear First Amendment doctrine is. In the Jones case, the questions were different, but similarly pushed the court forward. It's called Jones v. Opelika, and that's a case about an ordinance imposing licensing requirements and taxes on people selling books in public streets. And here the Jehovah's Witnesses again lose, but something really interesting happens, which is that the court has won a new chief justice. Harlan Fisk Stone is now the chief justice, and chief justices tend to be able to exert a little bit more influence over the court. And as you know, he was the lone dissenter in the Gobitis case, and he dissents again in this case. In his dissent, Stone wrote that the First Amendment should have a, quote, preferred position in the hierarchy of the Constitution, meaning the First Amendment should take precedence over all the other rights. That dissent includes justices Black, Douglas, and Murphy, all of whom were in the majority in Gobitis. And in the dissent, they acknowledge that they believe that Gobitis was wrongly decided. They argue that the court had improperly abdicated its responsibility to protect the views of religious minorities, however unpopular, and as we know, the witnesses are very unpopular and unorthodox their views may be. So this is a really interesting moment in the background is this sense that while patriotism is really important, compulsory patriotism does start to look more like fascism and Nazism, and that would be antithetical to American values. So this is just two years after the flag salute decision. America has officially entered World War II. Hitler has been sending Jehovah's Witnesses alongside Jews and other religious minorities to concentration camps. And now here are three additional justices suggesting that they regret their previous decision— which curtailed First Amendment liberties. So if you're Felix Frankfurter, you're really nervous about your Gobitis opinion. And in fact, he saw the writing on the wall and started writing his defense of his Gobitis opinion in sort of pieces, including on scraps of paper. Plus, by 1943, two new justices have joined the Supreme Court. Robert Jackson and Wiley Rutledge. And this offers hope to both the witnesses and their lawyers, as well as, I assume, to the justices who would like to now overturn Gobitis, that this is something that's possible. 
Peyton Covington sets off. He goes searching for the perfect test case. The case that will herald the biggest First Amendment victory for Jehovah's Witnesses that he can imagine. A case that forces the court to reverse its decision on the Pledge of Allegiance and the flag salute. This quest brought him to Slip Hill Grade School in the middle of West Virginia. So he goes to West Virginia because West Virginia's regulation on the flag salute actually incorporated several paragraphs of Justice Frankfurter's Gobitis opinion verbatim. So he's not leaving anything to chance. The belief is this will force the court to directly confront it and decide, is this going to continue to be viable or not? Covington found two young sisters, Marie and Gaethy Barnett, eight and nine years old. Just like the Gobitis children, they were Jehovah's Witnesses who had been expelled for refusing to participate in the flag salute. And also just like the Gobitis children, they were cute. The two little sisters almost looked like twins. They had big smiles, dimples, and hair that was pulled back with barrettes and bows. Covington just knew he had the right case. He also knew that if he challenged the law in a particular way with their case, he could get it fast-tracked to the Supreme Court. So he picks this case because he knows it can get to the court quickly, and he picks this case because he knows that there's language in the regulation that is going to cause the court to squarely confront what it wrote in Gobitis. So there's smart lawyering, and this is a very successful model for use in impact litigation even today in terms of picking the right forum, picking the right state regulation, picking sympathetic plaintiffs. They're picking school children. Covington was one of the very first lawyers in America to develop this tactic of finding and setting up perfect test cases, intentionally designed to press the Supreme Court into a decision. The method has since come to be known as impact litigation. So, as he hoped, the case West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett arrived at the Supreme Court. Covington delivered his oral arguments in that marble hall on March 11, 1943. And then, everyone waited. Three months later, the decision came down. When it came time to hand out responsibility for the opinion, Chief Justice Stone assigned it to Justice Jackson. One of the two new justices. And Jackson's resulting opinion is absolutely beautifully written. It's quotable. It talks about, um, if we seek nothing but unanimity, we wind up with the unanimity of the graveyard, that there is no occasion for government to force anyone to violate their conscience in such a way, and so on. It's really a beautiful opinion. It honestly is not written as an opinion about religious freedom, though, which is how the witnesses wanted it to be written. It's much more written as intellectual freedom and freedom of speech and expression. So it's both one of the great cases of the 20th century and a case that sort of elides the arguments of the litigants, and leans much more toward freedom of speech in a classic ACLU kind of way. So he views this as a speech case. This is a compelled speech case in addition to a religious conscience case. And he writes what I think is probably one of the most beautiful passages in a Supreme Court opinion. That passage goes, quote, if there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official, high or petty, can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. That's a quote that's framed in a lot of lawyers' offices. This is where the modern First Amendment is born. How we understand the First Amendment today 
all comes out of cases from this period. They established the parameters of First Amendment doctrine. So the conversations that we're having today directly pull on the language of these decisions. And I'm going to just read one other quote because I think you might see how this might be applicable to something happening in the United States. It says, To believe patriotism will not flourish if patriotic ceremonies are voluntary and spontaneous instead of a compulsory routine is to make an unflattering estimate of the appeal of our institutions of free minds. So I read that and I'm thinking about what's happening with Colin Kaepernick and the NFL and whether or not you're going to stand or kneel uh, during uh, the national anthem. So there, there's echoes of those themes in these cases. Justice Jackson's opinion was the majority opinion. The Supreme Court ruled six to three in favor of the Barnett sisters and the Jehovah's Witnesses. They declared that compelling anyone to salute the flag was a violation of an American citizen's First Amendment rights. Justices Black and Douglas, two of the longer-serving justices who had changed their minds after the Gobitis case, wrote a concurring opinion, agreeing with Jackson and supporting the decision. They wrote, Love of country must spring from willing hearts and free minds, inspired by a fair administration of wise laws. The Supreme Court released its decision and these famous First Amendment opinions on June 14, 1943. It was Flag Day. Barnett was the beginning of the end of the persecution of Jehovah's Witnesses. Just as the court's decision in Gobitis had signaled that patriotism should be paramount in America, the court's new decision in Barnett signaled that individual liberties and the First Amendment should be the new hallmark. As Justice Stone had predicted, the First Amendment now held a preferred position in the country and in the U.S. Constitution. So one of the things to take away from an experience like this is that in times of momentous social change and great challenge to the national sense of self, the Supreme Court changed its mind, actively changed its mind. Constitutional law changed and the Supreme Court changed and began to really understand itself as protecting religious life and religious diversity at far greater levels than they ever had before. Judge Rutherford died in 1942, so he didn't see the Barnett decision. But Hayden Covington continued to bring several more Jehovah's Witnesses cases before the Supreme Court over the following decade. He won many of them, and he became one of the most important figures in America to expand and cement the contours of the First Amendment. Covington also, two decades later, would become the lawyer defending boxer Muhammad Ali during the Vietnam War when Ali refused to register for the draft on religious grounds. Covington died in 1978. The flag salute cases and really the full suite of Jehovah's Witness cases mark the pivot into the rights revolution of the 20th century post-World War II rights revolution. It leads us right into the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement uses a lot of similar strategies to what the Jehovah's Witnesses were using. They're using impact litigation to move the national needle because both Jehovah's Witnesses and African Americans were not able to move the needle through the popularly elected branches of government. And when that happens, there is a tendency to see the courts as the avenue for seeking redress of your issues. The techniques of impact litigation that Covington developed, like actively searching out perfect test cases with the right plaintiffs at the right time in the right state, 
so that you can force a change that you want to see in the law, that became a prime method that other groups have used to bring about changes they've wanted. You can't understand the civil rights movement and you can't understand the modern movement for equality for LGBTQ people unless you understand the movement of the Jehovah's Witnesses in the World War II era. Impact litigation isn't just a creature of the political left. It's also something that's increasingly used by the political right. A group like the Alliance Defending Freedom uses impact litigation on issues related to, you know, religious liberty, abortion, free speech, etc. So impact litigation is something that's being used by people of all political and jurisprudential stripes. That's part of what has continued to add complexity to constitutional law as the 21st century unfurls before us. So many groups, large and small, across this diverse country have found tools to amplify their voices, to protect the expression of their identity, and to shape and reshape law. As a result, some of the core American liberties, particularly equality and free speech, are frequently and intensely colliding into each other. In dissent, Felix Frankfurter in the Barnett case argued that once we allowed religious believers to dictate to us which secular laws were validly imposed on them or not, that we would unlock Pandora's box. And it did, in fact, happen that way. We seem to have no real stable understanding about where religion begins and ends, how to protect it adequately, and even how to understand ourselves as enforcing separation of church and state in ways that are both sympathetic to religious life and don't embroil the government too deeply in telling religious group how to conduct their own faiths. We're in a moment where politics and constitutional arguments are lining up so precisely that it's just about as dramatic as it was during the 1930s and 40s. It really is. It's an anxious and portentous time. If the Jehovah's Witness cases leave us with lessons, though, they're not just lessons about the First Amendment— There are also lessons about how victories sometimes emerge out of losses, how the passage of time often changes the way that America prioritizes and interprets its own core values, and lessons about how even a small, marginalized group can marshal the power to shift the court and shift the country. This single group of people was able to really change the modern conception of the First Amendment. And if you're sitting at home listening to this podcast today and you feel disempowered, a group of people called the Jehovah's Witnesses, that group of people completely revolutionized the First Amendment in the United States. So don't feel powerless. A lot of times it's actually the politically disempowered groups that revolutionize our conceptions of freedom and equality in this country. Many thanks to this week's guests, Sally Gordon of the University of Pennsylvania's School of Law and Julie Silverbrook, Executive Director of the Constitutional Sources Project. Julie's organization is at work creating a massive free online library that gathers documents related to the U.S. Constitution in one place. It pulls them together from across a ton of different museums and private collections It's an incredible resource that's making constitutional history more accessible to the public. Our theme music and some of the additional compositions are by Ryan and Hayes Holiday. The original artwork for our podcast is by Michelle Thompson. And major, enormous thanks this week and every week to Ted Muldoon, my producer here at The Washington Post. If you haven't yet used your listener discount to get $100 off, 
on a one-year all-access digital subscription to The Washington Post, you can still visit wapo.st slash podcast offer to redeem it. That's wapo.st slash podcast offer. Now, I can't believe it, but our next episode of Constitutional is the final episode of our series. For the finale, I'll be talking with someone who's an expert on all the constitutional amendments that have been proposed throughout American history. So, yes, that means the 27 amendments that we currently have, but also the 11,000 other amendments that Congress has suggested over time that never made it. So I'd love to know what questions you'd like me to ask her. As we reach the end of the series, do you still have questions about the process of proposing amendments? Do you have questions about the amendments that didn't make it and what they suggest about the country's story? Questions about the amendments that did make it and what they have in common? I want this last episode to reflect on and to try to help answer any of the bigger questions that have emerged for all of you listeners over the course of this series. So share your thoughts with me. You can let me know what questions you have that you want me to ask on Twitter. I'm at Lily underscore Cunningham. Or you can also send me your questions at my email address, Lillian.Cunningham at washpost.com. Lillian.Cunningham at washpost.com. In order for me to gather up all these questions before my interview with her, please just share your questions with me by February 1st. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you, and I am so incredibly grateful that you've come along on this series with me. Thank you so much, and I'll be back soon with the finale of Constitutional. Constitutional.